across the world. On Sunday morning, something happens in nearly every culture, on nearly every continent. And that is that preachers preach. It is universally done. The question is, is it biblically done? We all have our thoughts on preaching, but today we want to look at what are God's thoughts on this common central facet of His church. So we're going to do something very meta. I'm not very trendy. This is as close as you're going to get. We're going to have a sermon on sermons. We're going to preach on preaching. And so uh, most of us have probably never heard a sermon on sermons. You ever heard a sermon on sermons? And yet we do it every Sunday. It's very essential. And yet God's people seldom look to God's Word for wisdom on that. Uh, we have traversed First and Second Timothy. This is our final message in First and Second Timothy. And uh, we have found that actually Timothy has had a lot to say on the subject of sermons. He has preached a lot about preaching. And so I would like you to turn in the Word of the Lord to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of ours. The Blue Pew Bibles, page 1268. You should find 2 Timothy 3. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's first turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You as Lord of this church. We ask that You would please use Your Word to disciple us today. That You would frame in our minds what is the intent and content that should be in a biblical message. What is the audience that we're facing in these days? How ought we help them to think of You? Lord, we're mindful of Your Son who taught us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're mindful, Jesus, that when facing temptation, the onslaught of Satan in the wilderness of Luke 4 and Matthew 4, that time full of the Spirit, You responded, it is written. It is written. It is written. You didn't rely on platitudes or emotionalism. You relied on the unbending Word of truth. The sure foundation in a world of shifting sand. We pray, Lord Jesus, that today You would give us an appreciation and an appropriation for Your intention when it comes to preaching. We pray this in Christ's holy name, whom we love. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them, those who creep into households and capture women burdened with sins and led away by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. But just as James and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecuted 
afflictions I endured, and yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Therefore, I urge you in the presence of God, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now we've looked at this text when we went through verse by verse through the book, but now we're coming back and we're looking at this text and chapter 4 together on this one subject, conventional wisdom versus biblical wisdom in regards to preaching. You have a rather lengthy Beth very graciously turned into a long sheet that's folded nine ways to Sunday. She does origami. It's one of her many talents. And if you can follow along in that, it's a little bit lengthy, uh, but there's much to say. It's odd we never hear anyone preach on preaching. This passage is absolutely chock full, and I couldn't leave the pastoral epistles without us at least exploring this subject. So the first thing we see in our passage is the context of our preaching. The context of our preaching. Uh, and, and the very first thing in your context is who are we preaching to? And that is letter A, our audience. The audience we will increasingly be preaching to according to the Word of God. And it's not sugar-coated, is it? Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Uh, friends, there were times in history when people were relatively eager to hear the Word of God. There were times in history when, when the wider culture was, was sort of more or less Judeo-Christian, and, and there was sort of a synergy between, between the Scripture and the culture. It wasn't a perfect synergy, but they seemed to go together sort of like a hand in glove. Let me show you what I mean. There was a time not that long ago when, when Andy Griffith wasn't a fairy tale. Right? There was a time when, when, when people lauded things like fidelity and, and morality and honesty and, and, and common decency was more or less a common virtue. 
in our society. Uh, common sense was more or less the application of biblical wisdom. They didn't always know it came from the Bible, but they were following the Bible, and much of society followed it. But that's not often what we see today in many contexts, is it? There's increasingly a disconnect from the way God would have us to live and the, and the way we're living. Uh, let me show you one of the easier places of disconnection. We preach the gospel of grace. And some people hear hate speech when we say it. That's how they process the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, when Jesus speaks to us on seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, it often causes a conflict in our own hearts, even among believers. Because among believers, we have competing loyalties between Christ and His kingdom. Because we often struggle as lovers of self and lovers of money and arrogant, proud, treacherous, swollen with conceit. And so we find the Word upending our worldview when we read it, don't we? It pierces like a two-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart of where we are. Now sometimes I find that Christians are shocked by the reception biblical preaching receives in our culture. But we shouldn't be. Because the Bible tells us clearly in 1 Timothy 3, this is how it is. You can go to places where it's much more obvious. You can go to places where it hasn't yet happened. But it's happening here and we're kind of going, oh, what's going on? 1 Timothy 3 is going on. And don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. God understood this. When, when we look at our precious Jesus and we see His self-sacrificial model of agape love, and Scripture urges us to, to be like-minded, to, to have that same self-sacrificial love, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, each of us should not out for our own interest, but the interest of others. It's compelling, but it's hard to walk. The world seems to always pull us into a different orbit. An, an orbit that seems to be much like 1 Timothy 3, where we're heartless and unappeasable, slanderous and without self-control and brutal and not loving the good and treacherous, reckless and strong with conceit. Hmm. We must understand the context of our preaching. Not that we would become discouraged. That's not what the Bible is asking us to do. But that we might pray for God to open a door for our message as Paul prays in Colossians 4. Pray that God would make people receptive. Pray that biblical preaching would fall on good soil that's prepared to receive it because we are not going to win men by slick choreography and rhetorical ability. No, friends, the Bible says that, that, that we do not wage war as the world does. The, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, the Bible says our weapons have divine power. Demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. We do that through the Word of God getting in the hearts of ourselves and our neighbors. And so we must pray urgently and fervently, just as we did this morning. I didn't prime Jason for that. Apparently the Spirit did, so I'm grateful. Uh, we must pray to the Lord of the harvest that though, as the Old Testament says, we go out weeping with seed to sow, we might come back rejoicing with sheep to show. That because we've been planting seed, there would be a harvest amongst us in 2018. 
Now, not only is our audience hardened according to the passage, but, but you need to know that opposition is going to happen. As we're faithful to Jesus, it's not everybody going to love us for it. And that brings us to point B, our opposition. It's clearly mentioned in our passage. Verses 6-9. to For among them are those who creep into the households and capture weak women burdened with sin astray by various passions. Passions. Excuse me. Passions. All learning and never able to arrive at the truth. So these false teachers that are finding easy targets, they're finding an easy mark, they're trying to pull you by what is carnal and telling you that's spiritual. They, They can learn forever. They can have Bible studies forever. They can speak on all kinds of minutia, but they never arrive at the truth. And this isn't new. This happened in the Old Testament. Verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, they're disqualified regarding the faith. They ought not be teachers or pastors. But they will not get very far ultimately. For their folly will be plain to all. That is, most Christians most of the time will see through this. As was the case of those two men in the Old Testament. Friends, in addition to the hard-heartedness of the audience, there is a reality that there will be false teachers among us. Uh, While we lay a biblical foundation, false teachers will come in behind what we're laying and they will uh, come in behind us to sow weeds where Christ wants wheat. On the mission field, it's not uncommon for a church planter to go to an area which has had no Gospel and after he leaves, a cultist comes behind and confuses the people. What do we see about these false teachers in our passage? We see that their tactics are subtle. They creep into houses, capturing the weak. We see that their appeal is carnal. They're led astray by what? By various passions. Their their rhetoric is artful, always learning, and yet never able to arrive at, at the knowledge of the truth. Friends, God says, the Bible says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. But today, many say that everything came from nothing. And so we're accountable <coughs> Excuse me. to no one. <coughs> the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. And the sole mediator between God and man, and the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. But others today say that Jesus is just a way to heaven. He's not the way to heaven. And and they twist the truth. Instead of saying, hallelujah, we found a way to rescue the perishing, they say, how narrow-minded of you to claim that your lifeboat is the only lifeboat. I don't know about you, lost at sea. I would be grateful that God sent me a light boat. I wouldn't be angry that someone had the gall to tell me I'm going to be perishing if I don't get in. How, how twisted our minds have become in 2018. Now sometimes we think of the presence of opposition and we think, you know, this is a new thing. But Jesus had the Pharisees and Moses had Janus and Jambres. There will be those who wear clerical robes who dilute and pollute the gospel. And the Bible says we must be on guard against these false teachers. For these men oppose the truth and they 
disrupted in mind and they're disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Now some of these false teachers will gain a great following. They will be very successful. But if we stay rooted in Scripture, we can see where these men have their departure. It is plain to those who know the light when darkness is setting in. The Bible says, by their fruit, you shall know. You shall know. We shall be able to see who is saying just what our itching ears want to hear versus who is actually preaching the Word of God that was once and for all delivered unto the saints. There's a difference. The Bible wants us to know one more thing about our context. The audience may be hard-hearted, so be prayed up. The the opposition is real, and and they will attempt to twist the Scriptures. And so we, we must rightly divide the truth, and we must tenaciously cling to the truth. But then there's point C. It's uncomfortable. I wish I didn't have to share it. It's very true if you tried to cling to the Gospel in 2018, and it's this. It's our persecution. And it comes from chapter 3, verses 10-13. through You, however, have followed my teachings, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Now, we're generally wanting to follow His teaching. Paul's conduct and his aim in life to glorify Jesus and his faith that's so vibrant and his patience with others that are, that are struggling to get it and love for the body where he would send himself to hell if Israel might be saved. His steadfastness that Paul never seems to waver no matter what comes at him. Then we get a little bit shaky on this next part. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Not just once. They happened in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A verse I've never seen needle pointed on the wall of any Christian home. (laughs) While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Friends, there's a cost for carrying the cross. Paul was persecuted. He was persecuted at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. I cannot promise you that living and loving like Jesus will always make everyone love you back. Wasn't true for Jesus. In fact, if people are as proud and as arrogant and as abusive and as ungrateful and unholy and heartless and unappeasable and slanderous and brutal, Thank you. And treacherous and reckless and conceited as the Holy Spirit is warning, then we must expect that our efforts to love our neighbor will sometimes be misconstrued as unloving by those who don't yet understand God's love. But friends, the Bible's clear. How will they hear without a preacher? If faith comes by hearing, and we are His witnesses, we mustn't let awkwardness silence us. We mustn't. It is not intolerant to offer an antidote to a poisoned person. It is the most loving thing you can possibly do to offer the antidote to poison if it's going to kill you. It's not condemning to tell a man he has cancer if cancer brings him to chemotherapy that brings him to no more cancer. And friends, that's sometimes how the Gospel works in a culture that doesn't want to hear that maybe we're not all good little boys and girls. 
Which brings us to point two. The content of our preaching. And we've looked at our audience. Let's look at our content. What is the content of our preaching? In fact, A, what should we What should we preach? The Bible's unambiguous in this. This isn't something up for debate. This isn't something we even need to think about. It's just something we need to obey. Number one, conventional wisdom says that we should preach things like self-help and, and felt needs and health and wealth and our denomination and its traditions. And, and we should do it with a sort of a white-hot emotionalism. In many churches today, I'm sad to say, you may not find the preacher devoting himself to the public reading of Scripture. You can go to some churches and hardly even hear two verses of Bible quoted in the entire sermon. When I taught preaching, and there was a very popular preacher, and the people would say, what do you think about this guy? i say, go back and listen to his sermon, and in the 30 minutes he preaches, I want you to write down every time he quotes the Bible at all. And they came back and said, not even two minutes. And I said, do it next Sunday. Not even two minutes and do it next time. Most popular preacher in America. Hmm. In many supposedly evangelical churches, there's very little Scripture even read in the service, much less expounded and explained. Uh, perhaps a verse or two flashes on the screen for a moment or two, but then it's really an oration about the preacher's pontification that's supposed to be what we need to hear. If we're really honest, if you dissect the, the, the church calendar in many settings, the preaching schedule is 48 Sundays of felt needs, plus Easter and Christmas and Mother's Day and, and now Earth Day. And that's the church calendar. There, these 48 Sundays of felt needs usually look something like this. A, a series on how to be a better parent and a series on how to battle handle your finances and a series on social justice and then six months of how to have your best life now. That's kind of how it breaks down in 2018. But the Bible says that, that Sunday is the Lord's Day. And, and we honor Him by, by pouring over His love letter to us. By devoting ourselves to the public reading of Scripture that we see in our passage. To, to clearly explaining it and, and to passionately encouraging us to walk in the truth of God's Word. This is how the people of God come to know God. How does Jesus say this is eternal life that you might that you might know God. And how do we know God? From what He's told us, what He's revealed to us in His Word. We, we learn of God by patient, careful exposition. We've seen this all the way through First and Second Timothy. Again and again, the Bible takes us there. But it's not just a New Testament thing. If you go back to the Old Testament, I can take you to numerous places. I'll take you to just one. If you'll turn in your Bibles, leave your thumb in 2 Timothy, and turn to Nehemiah 8.8. And for your neighbor who doesn't know where Nehemiah is, it's on page 510 of the Pew Bible. You can help him find it. Nehemiah 8.8 on page 5.10. Nehemiah 8.8, page 5.10. They read from the book. Nehemiah has assembled the people who had grown ignorant of the Word. They had returned from exile. They were the ones who were the, the, the faithful, and yet they, had, they too had drifted. And so Nehemiah read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And then here it is, he gave the sense. What does this mean? What are we reading? It's not just words we're reading, but what's the point of this? So that the people understood the reading. Nehemiah took the people of God to the Word of God. Nehemiah read it. Nehemiah explained it. And Nehemiah then urged God's people to obey it. We see the same thing in Ezra. I think it's around Ezra 7.10. The good hand of God was on Ezra. Why? Because he devoted himself to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and to teach his people the Word. This is the way the people of God become 
God-like. We, we follow His path as He's revealed it in Scripture. This is what you and I need from our sermons. We, we don't really need pop psychology or, or whatever is deemed trendy at the moment. We need to preach the Word. 2,000 years, anywhere you've gone where the church has followed this, the church has been vibrant. And so let's jettison the conventional wisdom and let's cling to the biblical wisdom, which brings us to number two. Biblical wisdom is this. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Very clear. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Paul loads the deck. God is watching. Jesus is watching. He's the judge. And this is what you as a preacher are for, that you preach the Word. Now, we're not called to preach about the Word. We're not even called to preach in congruity with the Word. We are to actually preach the Word itself. Like we open the Bible and we talk about that section of Scripture. To the public reading. We're to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching it. For the Bible says it's through the foolishness of preaching that God will save souls. It is through the renewing of our minds by washing us in the Word that we will overcome the world which is always trying to squeeze us into its mold. You spend all day, every day, with the world squeezing you. How much time do you spend in the Word so that when the devil tempts, you're able to respond, it is written, it is written, it is written in response. Friends, there is no amount of homiletic eloquence. There is no barrage of slick video clips. There is no preacher's creative narrative that can substitute for the Word of God. Taught clearly, plainly, patiently, and passionately. That is God's design of how church ought to work. And we dare not tinker with it because we think we've outgrown it. For man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this brings us to point B. Why should we preach the Word? Why should we preach the Word? Conventional wisdom says, mm, the Bible kind of bores. You're going to put people to sleep. But, but felt needs preaching will fill our sanctuary to bursting. If we, if we sort of go light on the Bible and heavy on the people, we're going to grow. But biblical wisdom doesn't say that. God's Word says, preach the Word. Why should we preach the Word? Well, verses 15-17 to 17 give us a four solid scriptural reasons of why God wants us to preach the Word. Letter A. Because Scripture alone is able to make us wise unto salvation. Because Scripture alone is able to make us wise unto salvation. Verse 15. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. I mean, it's right there. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, at the end of the day, self-help won't help. If my problem is greater than my resources, then self-help won't help me. If you and I are dead in our sins, as the Bible says, then we need an outside actor to step in and bring us life. Dead people cannot revive themselves. There's no one that I know of who's been a slab at the morgue who has ever opened the locker from the inside and crawled across stone-cold dead to the defibrillation station, hit the paddles, and come back to life. Do you? We need God to reach out to us in regeneration. A dead person needs the author of life to bring us life. 
We don't need tips and tricks from religious gurus. We need the wisdom of God as a lamp unto our feet in a world of darkness. That's what we need, whether we know it or not. A Scripture alone is able to make us wise unto salvation. We must preach the Word. B, we must preach the Word because Scripture alone is God-breathed. Only Scripture is God-breathed. Verse 16, pay close attention. All Scripture, all Scripture. I mean, that's Habakkuk that we can't spell and Leviticus that we don't understand and all of it, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and rebuke and correction and for training in righteousness. Now the word for, for God-breathed is theopanutas. And, and theopanutas literally means God-breathed. Theopanutas. It is uh, divinely inspired. That's what that means. It comes, its origin, its source, its strength is from God Himself. Did you know that it's not promised anywhere in the Bible that any preacher's sermon is inspired in that way? The greatest preacher who ever lived is not inspired by the Word of God is. And so it's better for the most mediocre preacher to hang to the Bible and let the God-breathed book be what the people hear. To the extent that your preacher is preaching Scripture, then you have something divinely sourced as your resource in a world that needs greater power than we can muster. Uh, there, uh, to an extent... Uh, to the extent that, that a, a preacher's sermon is just the cleverly crafted words of men, we can find those words exhilarating, we can find those words captivating, we can find those words able to tickle our ears. But those sermons are sadly unable to turn sinners to saints because that's something only God can do. Romans 10.17 couldn't be clearer on this point. You might want to write it down. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Do you hear the Word of Christ when you go to church? Do you hear the Word of God? We don't need a pastor who's more clever. We, don't need, a, we need a pastor who will humbly put us under Scripture week in and week out to the glory of God. Psalm 19 puts this very well. Psalm 19.7, another verse you might want to write down. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Friends, there is no book that so crackles with life, that speaks so poignantly and pointedly and practically to the human condition. It doesn't matter if you're standing in elation or depression. The, the Word of God alone is able to make you stable. And there's passages of Scripture that will speak right to your condition. But if we're not in the book, we won't know. And why is that? Point C. Because Scripture alone, because Scripture alone offers a fourfold path to Christ-likeness. Scripture alone offers us a fourfold path to Christ's likeness. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and here it is, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I want you to think about there's a straight way. And Scripture teaches my crooked heart where the straight way is. A Scripture rebukes me when I wander off the straight way. A Scripture corrects me back on to the straight way when I could never find my way because I've gotten so lost in my journey. And then Scripture trains me how to stay on the path that brings God glory and myself good. Or I will walk in darkness in my own wisdom and stumble. How about you? Have you ever been very sure that you were very right only to find out you wish you could do that over? 
and the Word of God had told you if you knew where to look, not to leave that path before you stepped off. We ought not grope in darkness when God has sent light into the world. Which brings us to point D. Why must we be in the Word? Because Scripture alone can equip the man or woman of God for kingdom-impacting service. If we're going to make a difference, the Word of God is able and capable and promises to be sufficient to equip us for kingdom-impacting service. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be effective and productive in my walk, as the Scriptures say. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when I meet Jesus face to face on that glorious day. And Scripture alone enables me to do just that. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so the man of God will be what? Complete. Equipped for every good work. Every single one. God's Word equips us for God's work. God's Word equips us for God's work. It it recalibrates us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And and so you and I need to be under preaching that preaches this Word. Not every pulpit does it. 150 years ago, there was a man named Charles Spurgeon. He's called the Prince of Preachers. And he said this, 150 years ago, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. What's your family attending? Where have you placed them on Sunday? And that brings us to point C. When should we preach the Word? When should we preach the Word? Number one is this. Conventional wisdom says, look, you should only preach when people are ripe and when they're ready and when it's all opportune and the lighting's right and the stage is right and the mood is right and nobody's going to get offended and it's all easy and... There's a very prominent church that had a a very dominant uh, flavor in the last 20 years in North America. Uh, Large church, a lot of conferences, a lot of people go to this church, uh, get their methodology from this church. And this church had a methodology that you needed to spend many, many, many Sundays um, getting people interested, getting them coming before you could ever be so bold as to maybe put the Gospel before the people. But oddly enough, when you look at the Bible, when you look at the book of Acts, and you see Peter and Paul and Stephen, and they seem to get right to the point in their messages. At Pentecost, when the the Holy Spirit inspired the very first sermon of the church age, the Bible says that this is what Peter uttered in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised Him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be led by it. Now at the end of that sermon, Peter ended not with some flowery, non-committal waffle. This is how he ended. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Does that sound different from our models today? In our passage today, instead of gradualism and hesitation in the attractional church where we need to wow people with lights and sounds, and then hopefully, eventually, maybe we get to the Gospel in the least confrontational way possible, friends, number two on your outline is this. Biblical wisdom says whether it's in season or whether it's out of season, you preach the Word. 
Whether it's in season and they want it, whether the winds are working for you or against you, whether in season or out of season, you preach the word. Look at verse four or chapter four, verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season when the conditions are favorable, and out of season when it's not. Biblical churches preach the Bible. Listen to that again. Definitionally true. Biblical churches preach the Bible. You can't be a biblical church unless you at least preach the Bible. In season and out of season. It's a definitional essential, isn't it? So how do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us in point D. It's a very clear passage. How should we preach the Word? Conventional wisdom says we should preach with with shouting and with slickness and in a special stained glass voice. In church history, there have been preachers who have put on airs. Have you ever heard the hacking preacher? You're driving through the South and and you're on the radio and and, and you hear, and you know, God, aha, and he comes, aha, and he's gonna, aha, he's gonna save, aha, and you're like, what? Like a guy's got Tourette's and you meet this guy and you're expecting him to go, I want a cheeseburger, aha, with extra pickles, aha, but he doesn't. He's like, yeah, I have a cheeseburger and two fries. and Like it's only in the pulpit that he's, aha. Now you go a little bit farther and you go, you go up north and, and you hear the guy in the stained glass voice who has the, the Harvard PhD and he says, God. And you kind of expect him to say, I'd like a steak. But he doesn't. It's only in the pulpit. We we don't need an affected voice. We don't need a a special little way that we convey because it's a show. Biblical wisdom says you just need to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's all you need to do. You just need to, to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and careful teaching. Let's look at letter A, to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Your pastor doesn't need that special voice. He needs to use his voice the way God made him. I sound like a nine-year-old girl when I have a cold. I get to be a baritone two Sundays a year. I understand. And we use that voice to follow God. We just go back to the Word. We don't need tricks. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need rhetoric. We need the Word. God's preacher must do this, be with great patience. And when you work with the people around you, when you disciple people around you, when you share the Gospel with people around you, when you raise up children in fear and admonition of the Lord, you need to remember this, you need to do it with great patience. That was an homage to the other preacher. God promised in Isaiah 55.11 that His Word will never return void. It will accomplish all He has set forth for it to do. The preacher just needs to put it out there. uh, Clear and plain and straight, and then he needs to get out of the way and let God work in our hearts. Now this is going to take patience. This is going to take... Think about your own life. Everything that God has taught you in in areas of your life where where you had an unbiblical worldview and God has made you see that that up is down and down is up and left is really right and day isn't night and He's recount... That took time, didn't it? It's going to take time for the people that we're discipling. This takes patience. Change is inevitable. God's Word never returns void. But it's often imperceptible. Discipleship is like watching redwoods grow. 
We have a couple from California. You've been to the Redwood Forest, I'm, I'm imagining. And, and if you go to the Redwood Forest week to week, nothing really seems to be happening. But friends, those redwoods started as small little wee, as the Scottish would say, acorns. They started with something very small and they grew into great redwoods. And the Bible talks about us becoming oaks of righteousness. And oaks start with acorns. And you've got people around you that the plant is, is tender and fragile and the shoot of faith is shot up through the soil of unbelief and, and they need shelter. And it's patience. Pray for them patiently. Nurture them in Scripture. Love on them faithfully. They're going to make mistakes. But understand that just as you were patiently worked on by Jesus, your children, your neighbor, your coworker, your spouse needs that same patient working. Keep watering them in the Word. Keep praying for God to grow. And in time, oaks of righteousness come from tender little seedlings of faith. People go from hearing the Word the first time to becoming much more regular in their listening. And soon that listening begins to change us. In those small internal changes that seem imperceptible to others, slowly they become holy habits. And holy habits become a godly character. And by God's grace, we're able to say what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Why? Because redwoods grow slowly and imperceptibly, but they're growing inevitably if they stay under the Word of the Lord. Saints are a lot like roasts. We're much better slow cooked than microwaved. Does anybody microwave their roasts? I mean, the original cooking, like you get potatoes and you. Nobody does that because it tastes. But you can take not so good meat, and if you cook it long enough and slow enough, boy, that's some good meat. And you know, you and I often aren't a lot to look at. But as Christ slowly works in us in his patient spirit, Word work. He makes something beautiful. The Bible talks about how we're His poems. Poema is the Greek word. His workmanship that He's crafting in us. So now we come to the third point in our passage. The, the conflict in our preaching. The, the conflict in our preaching. Conventional wisdom says conflict is really only because those false teachers, well, they're going to seduce the unstable. And, and so people, the problem is that people are following these these charismatic personalities, these very rhetorically capable people. And we like to put all the blame on the false teacher. Well, if we just didn't have that joker on TV and that moron that has the Lord, then we'd be fine. If only the charlatans were not shooting the Gospel, then folks would not be deceived. Hey friends, those false teachers are accountable for, to God. Uh, Jude and 2 Peter indicate that the worst place in hell goes to the person who twists the Word of God for his own gain. Worse than the child molester is the false teacher. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, Scripture says. But, but you need to understand, how did that famous guy get famous in the first place? He got famous because a whole lot of people want to hear it. The Bible's answer is that many people would rather listen to a well-told lie than a hard truth. Many people would rather listen to a well-told lie than a hard truth. Which brings us to point B. Biblical wisdom says people want what they want, not necessarily what they need. Biblical wisdom says that people want what they want, but not necessarily what they need. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure. They'll want nothing to do with sound teaching. But having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The blame in this passage is not the false teacher. He's blamed another passage. Here it's the audience who just wants to hear whatever makes them happy, healthy, 
and supposedly wealthy. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Verse 5, but as for you, don't be like that. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Uh, You know what? Many people may flock for a season to the latest rendition of ear tickling. But as for you and your house, always be sober-minded and find a biblical expositor. Find a church that's a biblical church. It doesn't have to be Calvary. It can be any church that faithfully, regularly, unapologetically puts your family under the truth of Scripture. Sunday in and Sunday out. We're not here to build the empire of Calvary. We're here to build the kingdom of God. Amen? And you build the kingdom of God by doing God's work, God's way, through God's will, which is revealed in God's Word. You need to put your family in a church that's going to preach the Bible unapologetically every single Sunday. And friends, you know what? You're going to need to pray. Pray for God to raise up more biblical expositors. This is becoming rarer and rarer and harder to find. I have people say, I've moved to this town, I've moved to that town. Where do I find someone that preaches the Bible? And it used to be much easier. So pray that God would raise up in our generation a, 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 a male storm of, of, of men who would be on fire for Jesus and who would faithfully exposit the Word of God. God can do that. And He's done that many times before. Number four, the conclusion of our preaching. The conclusion of our preaching. Conventional wisdom says that, that preaching is easy. That the preacher only works for sun, on Sundays for an hour. What a great gig, right? Like, who can get that gig? But biblical wisdom says preaching is going to drain you. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Paul, in speaking about his ministry, says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Friends, what does that mean? That means that there was nothing left of Paul except for a perfume in a room and a stain that he came. He left it all on the table. He was utterly exhausted. He gave himself fully to the work of the ministry. Conventional wisdom says preaching is something you can throw together at the last minute. So so Saturday afternoon, after the game, after you've mowed the lawn, now you can throw together a sermon. And there are preachers that do that. But biblical wisdom says, you know what? Preaching the way God wants you to do it, it's hard work. And it's going to require perseverance as you wrestle with the text and figure out how to share it with the people. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's a fight and it's a race. It's not a lounge chair, poolside. E. Conventional wisdom says that the reward for good preaching. Well, why should you be a good preacher? Conventional wisdom says you get the killer bees. You get buildings, bucks, and baptisms. We, we have a larger seating. Uh, we had a whole bunch of people that have been baptized, and we have a greater budget. We have greater influence. We have a greater whatever. Uh, we get accolades. We get mercs and perks. We get, we get our own TV show on the God Channel. There are men in ministry that this is very appealing to. Some of them are good men that that Satan's trying to get their arms into and others are not so good. But here's the biblical wisdom. Why should we be doing this? Pray for your pastors. Pray for those young in the ministry. Pray those that we're sending to seminary. That biblical wisdom says our reward is future and it's from Christ. And it's much better than anything temporal. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that future day. Not today, on that future day. And not only to me, but to everyone who loved His appearing. You don't have to be a preacher to get this reward. You just have to be faithful to the King. 
I don't know who God is asking you to invest in, to share God's Word with, to share the Gospel with, but if you're faithful in that, there is a reward coming from Jesus. Let's pray that this church would not get swept away in the spirit of the age, that reimagines preaching. Instead, let us be found faithful, devoting ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching it with great patience and careful instruction to the glory of God. Let's pray that God would make Calvary a disciple-making church, well-grounding people in the faith that's been once and for all entrusted to the saints. Let's pray that God would make Calvary a soul-winning church. Do you know what the book of Proverbs says? In Proverbs 11.30, it says that he who winneth souls is wise. Let's pray that we would be that wise church. A church that helps others find Jesus. So we're going to pray, and that's what we're going to pray today. Lord Jesus, I thank You that we have had the opportunity to go through the pastoral epistles and we've already gone through all of the text and then You led me to stop at the end and single out one more sermon on sermons. And it was a little risky because I haven't heard anybody else really preaching on preaching. I pray that I would not have confused people. I pray that I would not have bored people. I pray, Lord, that You would use Your Word to help us. That we would moor ourselves to the kind of churches that are going to, to let us understand You as You are, for You have revealed Yourself in Scripture. You have spoken. We don't need to grope in the dark. We don't need to guess our way forward. We don't need to be creative or inventive. We need to cling to the faith that was once and for all handed to the saints that is built on the foundation of the prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Lord, would You be so kind as to make this a disciple-making church that we wouldn't have our metrics be how full are we, but rather how faithful are we. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You might be gracious and that this might be a soul-winning congregation. I think of the many that were here on Good Friday and Easter Sunday in particular who, who we've invited who don't yet know Jesus. And I pray that You would give them the gift of faith. I pray, Lord, that the Gospel would rise up in their heart, that You would put Christ on their mind, that You would put the truths of Scripture on their heart, and that You would be wooing and pursuing and calling and in any way that You would use us, whether that's in prayer or whether that's in sharing more, that You would give those opportunities to us, Lord. I pray that this congregation would be a church that pleases You. I pray that we would be a strategic congregation for Your kingdom to be built. Not for our empire, Lord. We know that this whole earth will burn up as a scroll and there's no promises in Scripture to Calvary Evangelical Church, but You are building an unshakable kingdom and You're inviting every tribe and tongue to sit at Your wedding banquet. May we be effective. May we be fruitful. May we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, all the way through the ranks because you grade us on faithfulness, not flashiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.